0: Well, children, in the normal place tonight, in your bulletin, you will find these words that you're going to be listening for. The words are hypocrisy, a couple of longer words tonight, one being externalism, one is legalism, and then a few shorter ones of outside, inside, clean, unclean, heart, behavior, And gospel. All right? Those are your words tonight. Well, based on the title that I've given to the sermon, you may think that I'm going to begin with a few Jeff Foxworthy jokes. Um, But just as I refrained last week from using a few here's your sign jokes, I'm going to refrain from any you might be a redneck joke, uh, or you might be a redneck if jokes this week which I know many of you are grateful. Um, <laughs> what I want to do instead is begin by asking a couple of questions, all right? Uh, the first question is this, what do you believe is the most significant danger that we face today as a church? Is it COVID or COVID-related issues? Is it racism? Um, is it Islamic, is it Islamic fundamentalism? Is it the growing Mormon population in our area? Uh, is, it a, um, is it doctrinal error? What is the most significant danger facing our church today? If you were to ask me, um, and you haven't, but I'm going to tell you anyway, I believe the answer is spiritual hypocrisy. And to say that, I, it would be helpful for me to define it, and so I've looked to Philip Ryken to help with this. He describes a spiritual hypocrite as someone who is theologically informed, um, religiously active, morally conservative, and one whose heart is far from God. So let me repeat that. A spiritual hypocrite is one who is theologically informed, religiously active, morally conservative, and one whose heart is far away from God. Let that sink in for just a minute. The second question is this, what sets us apart from the world and from many other churches More than anything else that we do when we gather together for corporate worship on a Sunday evening, let me rephrase that, of all we do as a part of our liturgy, what is something most churches don't do and most everybody else gathering outside of a worship setting definitely does not do or would not do, not even something similar. The answer is confession of sin. Um, The time in our service, as I mentioned earlier, when we admit that God is holy and we are not, and He is perfect, you know, we are sinful, and He is right and we are wrong. Um, Again, most churches don't do it. Definitely not going to happen outside of a worship service. Um, And it doesn't happen because we hate to admit we're wrong. We don't like admitting that we're wrong. We don't like admitting that we fall short in any way. We don't like admitting that we fall short of any standard, particularly a religious or spiritual or moral or ethic, uh, ethical standard. And I know some of you are probably thinking, what do those two questions have to do with one another? How are they related? They don't seem to go together. But the truth of the matter is, tonight, our passage is going to confront us with the question, are you a spiritual hypocrite? We're going to have to answer that question. And then, having been confronted, we're going to have to decide if we're going to admit that Admit that we are, in some ways, and then we're going to have to decide whether or not we're going to repent of that, and seek the forgiveness that is offered in Christ, that is offered to us, and that will be given to us if we but ask. Or, we'll be confronted with it, and maybe decide to defend ourselves and push back, and rationalize, and justify our behavior in order to save face. Sounds fun, doesn't it? But that's what happens here exactly in our passage. It breaks down into two headings because Christ Himself breaks it down into two headings. We're going to look first at externalism, And secondly, we'll look at legalism, spiritual hypocrisy broken down into externalism and legalism, and as is our custom, let's pray before we go any further. Father, by Your Spirit, grant us power, grant power to the preaching of Your Word, grant us ears to hear and eyes to see. Grant us all the ability to appraise and apprehend the truth regarding spiritual hypocrisy and the externalism and legalism that, if we're honest, we all must fight against. Awaken our attention and convict us and challenge us and refresh us and encourage us and comfort us through your gospel. I'm weak and needy as always, of this task to which You've called me, so I ask for Your support, I ask for You to fill me with Your Spirit, that I might be a pure channel of Your grace. Help me to communicate clearly and with fervency and fluency and with grace for the sake of Christ and His church. Amen." Well, if you weren't with us, you're not going to remember, but if you were with us, you're going to remember that our Study concluded last week with Jesus confronting that group of Pharisees and scribes who had been attempting to try him in the court of public opinion. Um, He had identified their inability and their irresponsibility when it came to receiving and reflecting the light that was obviously recognizable and should have been particularly for this group who considered themselves experts in the law. With the abundance of evidence that they had, um, they should have connected all the dots that were before them and they should have responded appropriately with humble hearts, bowed knees, and repentant lips because of their sin and because of the fact that they stood before the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the anointed Messiah who had come to to save His people from their sins. But they thought they possessed the light. They, in their piousness, Uh, having a piety that was unmatched, they, of course, were theologically informed and religiously active and morally conservative. They were influential in their communities due to the prestigious positions that they held. They were being held up uh, as examples to emulate But Jesus' assessment, if you remember, was very, very different from their own, as verse 35 uh, made clear. What they thought was light, He, very matter-of-factly, described as darkness. And I'm sure that piqued their interest. And they wanted to, they, they weren't dumb, so they knew what he was saying, but they wanted to make sure what he said was what they heard him say. And so, in verse 37, Luke says, one of them invites him over for dinner. And not only he, but many others join him there. And, and while Luke doesn't say it, we can imagine, and I think it's a safe bet, that Jesus accepted this invitation knowing what was in their hearts, and understanding to where this was leading, right? It was purposeful, and he, he wasn't caught off guard with what happens, and he's prepared for them, and it doesn't take long before the sparks begin to fly. You'll see in verse 38, Jesus doesn't even get to the table before the externalism shows its, its ugly head. And the Pharisee says, or Luke says, the Pharisee was astonished to see that he, being Jesus, did not first wash before dinner. Now, his problem and the, the problem of the other Pharisees had nothing to do with hygiene, and it also had nothing to do with the law. It had everything to do with the traditional ceremonial washing that had been set up through oral tradition by the Pharisees. And they weren't washing uh, washing away germs, but they were washing away the sinfulness of the world. And 20 seconds in an antibacterial soap was not going to do the trick. Listen to these words from the Mishnah. It's the first part of the Jewish Talmud, and it was brought to my attention by Kent Hughes. It says this, the hands are susceptible to uncleanness, and they are rendered clean up to the wrist. If a man had poured the first water up to the wrist and the second water beyond the wrist, and the water flowed back to the hand, the hand becomes clean. But if he poured both the first water and the second water beyond the first, and the water flowed back to the hand, the hand remains unclean. If he poured the first water over the one hand alone and then bethought himself and poured the second water over the one hand, his one hand is clean. If he had poured the water over the one hand and rubbed it on the other, it becomes unclean. But if he rubbed it on his head or on the wall, it remains clean. Clear as mud. That's why they needed the scribes. Right? They had to help, or were supposed to, and we'll come to that in just a minute. With this kind of specificity, we understand why the fact that Jesus didn't wash His hands was such a big deal. Jesus broke this man-made rule, a part of the code of conduct that, established, that was established by the Pharisees to promote and monitor uh, what they had determined to be right and wrong behavior. And Jesus in verse 39 names it for what it is and calls them out in the process. He said, You Pharisees, you clean, or or, you Pharisees, cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. You fools. Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give us all, give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean. For you. Jesus said, look, you guys are, are too concerned, you're more concerned with the outside and the external that you don't give any concern for the inside or the internal. You're so concerned about appearances and behaviors that you ignore the more impor- important internal matters of character. You may look clean and undefiled on the outside. Yet on the inside, you're, you're just money hungry and just plain wicked. You're fools. Don't you know, he says, that God made both the inside and the outside. God is concerned, more, he is more concerned than just with the outward external behaviors He's concerned about your heart. Your hands may be clean, but your hearts are undefiled, are, are, are defiled. They're filthy. The, the, the cleanness that you desire, true cleanness, isn't made evident through your external conformity or outward conformity to these man-made traditions and your own prefer, preferential rule following. It's revealed by your heart and your desires, and your affections. It's exhibited through your character, through the mercy and kindness and patience and love and care that you exhibit and extend to other people. And this, by the way, the language, this this is not a recommendation that He is giving them to consider. Right? He is... He's saying this is a non-negotiable that they need to embrace. Their hearts and minds and actions all need to change. Something has to be different. And he was straightforward and to the point. He didn't mince words as he's always done. And he's just getting started. Because he follows that up with three woes. In verses 42 to 44, and these woes express more of an extreme sadness than they do a condemnation, but they still serve as a very, very strong rebuke. And the first woe was for their focus on minor things while neglecting major things. One commentator put it this way, he says, theirs was a visible preoccupation with the trivial while neglecting the most important. He says, Woe to you, woe to you, because you take the time to measure 10% of everything in your garden. Even those things that aren't required, you're you're not required to tithe on. And you're not required to tithe on them because they're weeds. But yet you take the time to measure this out. You're willing and, and, and you take the time to measure out the smallest of your possessions and yet you don't love God or your neighbor. You measure out 10% of the smallest things, but you fail to do the more difficult things of showing mercy and acting justly. And really what they were doing is giving 10% and no more, and they gave toward that which was used to support those in the synagogue. but they were failing. And, and we read, we'll read throughout this, the rest of this gospel. They're, they will fail to protect the weak and serve the poor and visit the widows and the orphans who are, uh, who are being afflicted. And like I said a couple of weeks ago, they do what's manageable and easy and takes the least amount of effort. The second woe, was for their preoccupation with their standing and position before other people. They wanted personal and public accolades from everybody around them. They wanted others to notice their accomplishments and to acknowledge their spirituality. They were the very first virtue signalers who were keenly adept at drawing attention to their own self-righteousness while at the same time Informing others of their shortcomings and failures to do the same. They were also the first humble braggers. They didn't need the internet to do it. They were the first to to quickly announce how privileged and how honored they were to be invited to speak and to meet at, at the special event that was happening in town. They would name drop, and they would seek out public greetings and photo ops with these influential people so that everybody around them would know who they were hanging out with, and they would, they would say, they, they believed they were entitled to, and so they sought and believed that the best seats at the dinners and the fundraisers and even in worship were, were for them. And the only way they would give them up is if it was somebody else who was more prestigious in their very own group. Then they might allow someone else to take their seat. And then the third woe was for the damage they were doing as a result of this externalism. And it's a scathing indictment. Verse 44, he says, woe to you, For you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without even knowing it. You see, the Pharisees themselves went about marking graves. They took it upon themselves. It was very important, because if anybody walked over an unmarked grave, you were coming in contact with the dead. And according to Numbers 19, if you came into contact with the dead, you were considered unclean for a week. So they would mark those to make sure that you could go around them. And what Jesus is saying is that you guys are the walking dead. You're, you're unclean inside and out. You're rotting corpses, spiritually speaking. And when people come into contact with you, they're being contaminated because what you teach actually leads to death Philip Riken puts it this way, he says, the very men who were trying to keep things spiritually clean were, in fact, sources of spiritual defilement. But he's not through. He keeps going. A scribe lets him know, you've insulted us. And he says, I'm just getting started. There's three more woes. Most of the time, we keep the scribes and Pharisees in one group because they're, a, and we should, they're part of the spiritual establishment. But I think it would be helpful for us to differentiate between these two groups as we move forward. The, uh, the best description I've heard is that the Pharisees were the policymakers, and the scribes were the compliance officers, right? That meant that the Pharisees made the rules, and the scribes determined um, and, and were responsible to make sure that everybody followed those rules. And Jesus addresses them specifically for the role they played. And He says first, the first woe in verse 46, He says, Woe to you lawyers also. Woe to you experts of the law Woe to you, compliance officers, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. In other words, you guys, you're, you're doing nothing but more, adding more and more and more of your man-made rules and your man-made traditions, and, and you're doing nothing but weighing people down. You're doing nothing but binding them up. You're distracting people from, from what is perfect, which is the law of God, and you're doing it with what is imperfect, which is your oral traditions and your, and your own man-made rules, and you're laying these burdens, uh, burden upon burden upon burden upon the backs of, of people to the point that they cannot bear it anymore. And spiritually, they walk around bent over and exhausted from the weight of these traditions, of these must-dos and must-not-dos. And add to that the guilt that they feel from not being able to do all of it, or any of it for that matter. And not only that, he says, you've added... So many of these things that you've put them in a position where they need your help. You've put yourself in a position where you're needed. They're dependent upon you to interpret, as we just just read. But he says, you egregiously leave them to fend for themselves. You don't do anything to help. You tell them what they must do and what they must must not do, and you don't lift a finger. As a matter of fact, you know the law. You know the law inside and out. You know all the extras that you've attached to it so well that you've conveniently, not only have you left them to fend for themselves, but you have conveniently made loopholes for yourself so that you don't have to do what you are tediously holding them accountable to do. You basically left your, you leave yourselves off the hook, or you let yourselves off the hook, and you bask in your own glory, and they grow more and more hopeless. And then he says, to make matters worse, right, you never talk about the mercy of God. You never talk about the mercy of God that is the answer to their inability and guilt. You're just plain wicked. The second woe is a little more wordy, but no less straightforward in verses 47 to 51. He associates the scribes with the leaders of, of uh, Israel from the past. And he says, both the the fathers, both you scribes and your fathers from the past rejected the messengers of God, which means you've also rejected the message of God. And while it you look good on the outside, and you're building these tombs, you're building these, these monuments to the prophets, and it looks pious. Right? You look like you're doing a good thing, but in reality, you're doing nothing more than finishing the job that they started. They killed the prophets. You're just making sure they're dead by sealing their tombs. If you really wanted to honor them, you'd do what they say. It's really simple. Honor them by doing what they say. You've, the blood is on your hands. The blood of Abel from Genesis 4 to the blood of Zechariah in 2 Chronicles chapter 24 that was the last Hebrew book of the or the last book of the Hebrew Scriptures. Basically, he's saying the prophets and people from A to Z are all on you. All on you. And it wouldn't be long. He wasn't wrong. And we know he's not wrong Because just in a few chapters, we're going to see that they're going to send him, the prophet of prophets, the greatest prophet ever, to his own cross. To die. And do what their fathers had done before. And then the final woe is in verse 52. He says, woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not... Enter yourselves, and you hindered those who are entering. Basically, you're doing more harm than good, guys. You say you're, you're, doing, you're, you're being helpful, and I'm saying otherwise. Your ignorance is damning. Of all people, you should know better. You have claimed to be experts. You've had the knowledge of the law, yet you've missed it. You've missed it because you've missed him because the law pointed to Jesus, and you failed. You failed to enter the kingdom, and everybody that's following you is failing to enter the kingdom, and it's your fault. Somehow you think that you can follow these man-made traditions and these these oral traditions and these man-made rules, and somehow that you're going to merit entrance into the kingdom of heaven, that you're going to merit your citizenship. It doesn't work that way. And everybody who's believing you and following you is going to find out the same. You're stumbling blocks and people are tripping over you. You're not helping them because they weren't using the law as Paul said it should have been used, and that was as a tutor to lead people to Christ. They weren't using it to free people. They were using it to bind them up and to keep them in shackles. And then he's done. (laughs) And so we're done. And just in talking about it, you feel the weight, don't you? Just in describing the passage, we feel the weight. We feel our shoulders down. So we ask ourselves, what, what are our takeaways? What, what do we take away? And the three things I want us to consider tonight. And the first is this. I want to ask a few questions. I'm going to ask you to be honest with yourself. In what ways are you more concerned about outward appearances than you are inward character? Be honest. In what ways do you focus on minor issues at the expense of major ones? In what ways are you preoccupied with your standing before other people, more so than you are your standing before the Lord? In what ways do you load others down with musts, M-U-S-T-S, that are burden-producing? In what ways do you merely give lip service to what you believe? And in what ways are you a stumbling block to others? Now that the Pharisee and scribe that lies within all of us has been confronted, may I I encourage us all not to respond as the scribes and Pharisees did in verses 53 and 54. May we not push back. May we not turn away from Christ. May we not turn our back on Him, but turn toward Him. May we not discredit Him, but may we seek Him out. Right? This, this passage is here for us to push us to Christ Not away from Him. And may we, because He took on the woe for us. He took on the woe for us. And may we respond with our own woe. As we hear this passage, may we respond with, Woe is me, for I am a sinner in need of forgiveness. Forgive me for the spiritual hypocrisy within me. Forgive me for the externalism and legalism that so easily entices me and entangles me. May we call out to Christ for the forgiveness that He will grant to us if we but ask. Because there is freedom in Him. Secondly, May we make a a more concerted effort to not hinder people from coming to Christ. And I want to share a few things that that I think we can do um, that won't um, to make sure that we don't take away the key of knowledge, to put it, to use the language of the passage, all right? Um, First, let's let's be clear and simple in telling people about Jesus. Let's not make it harder than it actually is. Um, let's, let's better learn to tell the difference between what is the law and, and what is our own personal preferences and traditions and definitions and determinations. Let's focus on, let's focus on being offended by what actually, by, by things that, Actually, offend the Lord, right? Let's let's focus on being offended by things that God Himself truly finds offensive rather than our own preferences and opinions. Let's maintain a by grace alone, through faith alone and Christ alone, basis for our standing before the Lord. Let's maintain our focus on the inward transforming work of the Spirit rather than the outward religious rituals. And let's be quick to identify when we need to repent, when we give in to the temptations to focus on the minor things rather than the major things, and may we be quick to repent and identify when... We've given into the temptation of, of becoming preoccupied with our own standing before other people rather than before the Lord. And let's be, let's always treat the Bible. Let's treat God's word as not only His word, well, it, let's treat it as a word, as His word, um, and that it's a word from Him to be obeyed and not a text to analyze. And let's refrain from adding musts, other than repenting of our sin and turning to faith in Christ, to assure ourselves of our standing before the Lord and others. Let's refrain from virtue signaling. How about it? Let's refrain from confusing Christianity with politics. Let's be champions of Christian liberty. Let's uphold our confession that says, God alone is Lord of the conscience and hath left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men, which are in anything contrary to His word or beside it in matters of faith or worship. So that to believe such doctrines or to obey such commands out of conscience is to betray true liberty of conscience, and the requiring of an an implicit faith, and an absolute and blind obedience is to destroy liberty of conscience and reason alone. In other words, in the black and white areas of Scripture, we need to be firmly convicted and in those gray areas, we need to also be firmly convicted, but we need to determine our convictions based on scriptural principles, and then we need to allow the freedom, others to have the freedom to do the same, even though they differ from us. And finally, for those of you who have been carrying the weight Of the overwhelming burdens placed upon you by the Pharisees of our day. The spiritual hypocrites who have been more concerned about their own man made traditions and rules and determinations and definitions that arise out of their own externalism and legalism. I'm sure you're exhausted. I'm sure you are, and you may even be skeptical, and you may be, be, as a result, be in the midst of a season of doubt. And I get it. You've been trying to perform to meet a standard that you're unable to meet. And you not only have to deal with that inability, you've got to deal with the guilt that's been heaped upon you for that lack of ability. And it's, in some cases, may have left you hopeless. And I want to say, first and foremost, that I'm sorry for that. I'm sorry that's been your experience. I'll go so far as to say that you have been victims of spiritual malpractice. And that grieves me deeply. So to you I say, hear these words. Words from the Lord Jesus Himself. He says to you tonight, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light." You see, spiritual hypocrites do two things. One, they a- underestimate the sin within us. And they overestimate our power to overcome it. They think the problem is external and the answer is internal, and it's just the opposite. Our problem is internal. And the, ex- and the answer is external. And we don't simply need to work harder, we need our hearts to be changed and that comes through the person of Christ. The gospel is the antidote to spiritual hypocrisy. Life, death, and resurrection of Christ for sinners. It's through the gospel that we receive new life. It's through the gospel that we receive forgiveness. It's through the gospel that we are able to determine what is important and, or, or what is major and what is minor. It's through the gospel that we are able to determine those musts that bind our conscience. It's through the gospel that we come to grips with who we are in Christ and the right standing that is ours before the Father because He Himself has determined that for us once and for all. And having been accepted by God and approved of by God, we do not need the acceptance of or approval of anyone else. So we don't have to pretend. We don't have to perform. We can rest. And as Paul wrote to the church in Galatia, it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Therefore, Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. May that be so. Let's pray together.